Los Angeles too, there is a musical community that used to exist here, it doesn't exist here anymore, uh, does not really exist in New York either. There are a lot of musicians in New York, but there's very little interplay. Absolutely. The chances are, if you came to Los Angeles and hung out a little bit and played around a little bit, that somebody would, something would happen out of that. Yeah, something right. would come out of that. Somebody writing a song for you. No, or, you see, I'm going out there next month to write with this many people, you yeah. know, so it, it sort of seems uh, silly not to try to at least go out there and rent for a while. It's also you know. great for your yeah, exactly. You know, I mean, we've been living on the... We have a, a penthouse apartment right on Galt Ocean Mile, which is like the big stretch of Fort Lauderdale Beach there. It's just... And it's very quiet, it's very secure. And, uh, you know... In Los Angeles, you eliminate any of the problems of being a name. You know, right. That's, they're, they're so used to it. There's a rhythm out there today. Yeah. Uh, do, you think, do you think I could uh, have a coffee? Series Westwood one would like to do it. I don't know if I know. Would that be from this interview from now? This interview, yeah. Okay. This interview. And so it's it's basically a book. I, whether it ever turns out to be anything else, I, I don't even know. But I know it's going to be a book. It'll be out maybe next Christmas, a year from this Christmas. Right. If I can get it done in time. So I just right. want to talk. Question. You had made a number of albums. You've been with a herd, you've been with a humble pie, you made some albums on your own. All of a sudden, ten years ago comes this album. Right. Why was it so big? Um, obviously, I've got lots of different uh, ideas. I really, I have not basically a, a clue uh, <laughs> as to as to why it was that big. I think that um, I think that rock and roll is something that um, any sort of music the performer has to really be enjoying what he's doing, and to be able to get that to come across to the individual, I think, is very difficult to do. Not, not many artists, I think, well, great artists, are able to do that, like Presley and people like that, um, uh, the Beatles. It's, it's very difficult to, when you're singing to someone, every, the audience wants to think that you're singing to them individually. And I think um, it's much easier for me. I've always been a live performer, and I think it's something that uh, happens when I when I go on stage that um, everything 195 percent of me goes goes into that performance. And I think what we captured was me and the band enjoying ourselves the most we could. And I think that came across. And that's that's a very I would like to think that was the reason. Um, obviously, it was the other reasons are sort of uh, the fact that it was really f uh, the best of Frampton uh, with Humble Pie, because there was a Humble Pie number there, and two or three tracks off each solo album. And they change when you play them live, obviously. You, you uh, involve the audience. Um, otherwise, it would just be like watching a record. And I think that... Those those reasons really sort of coupled together. Uh, uh, it was a good sounding album too, you know. Some people say uh, there was maybe a newer, a younger audience, uh, less interested in heavyweight lyrics or messages. Is there some validity to that at all? Um, I don't mean heavyweight lyrics. I mean messages or right. Significance. Well, I as far as. Um, as far as the way I've always thought about writing um, 
writing songs is sort of more along the line that I've... What's going on here? What the hell is happening? How did it happen so big? Uh, when you were when you were the herd and uh, and with humble pie, was the American marketplace something you were really concerned about? Uh, or... um, with the herd, um, not. Obviously, we, we well. First of all, I didn't know one thing about the American market at all at that time. I knew that the reason that I was playing guitar and uh, writing and singing was 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 the fact that um, American music uh, um, rock and roll obviously was was the thing that started me off. But um, as as soon as I joined uh, or helped form Humble Pie, um, one of the first things we did um, when we were managed and uh, with the same record company as Andrew Oldham had uh, immediate records, um, we went to America and then I realized, oh, <laughs> yes, here's America, you know. So um, being totally naive to... to um, to America up until that point, and then it was just a learning process, obviously, which you had to learn everything all over again because it's so different. Your influences here early were were the Beatles and people like that. Um, the earliest um, people that I listened to, we had uh, TV shows over here that were really, I would almost say, eighty percent each week American artists, which was um, uh, Eddie Cochran, Buddy Holly. Um, film of Elvis Presley because um, I don't think he ever came here but all all those uh, original late 50s uh, the originators well, you were just a kid then. right Everly Brothers yeah. yeah so I was in 58 I was 8 right. so I can always remember my age because it follows the yeah. year right <laughs> yeah yeah I need that <laughs> sometimes um, so then there were um, um, English uh, originators, sort of copious, <laughs> but became. Uh, I didn't. I, I thought that um, when I first heard Cliff Richard and the Shadows, I thought that uh, this was something very English. Until obviously, I realised that all these other things. Then I was seven or something, you know. So, um, and then all these uh, rock and rollers came over. Um, uh, Little Richard, uh, you know, all the people that that originated. Where did you learn to play the guitar solo? Um, well, that was something that um, uh, my my grandmother had a, a banjolele, which is a, a banjo-shaped ukulele. Uh, and uh, whenever I, we would go over to, uh, it was my father's mother, um, there I would see this thing, open it up, and have my father play a few chords on it. And then it got moved to our attic, so every time we went up there to put some packages up there or take some down, I'd have my father take it out and show me another chord. So by the time I was seven and a half, I was pretty well versed in things like does your chewing gum lose its flavor on the bedpost overnight, hang down your head, Tom Dooley, um, <laughs> or the um, uh, George Formby-type songs. Um, and then when I was eight for Christmas, um, I badgered my father for a guitar and he taught me a couple of um, you know CF and G7th and then um, I sort of took it from there learned everything note for note off the shadows, the ventures Cliff Richard, uh, 
Buddy Holly a little later, and just any guitar I heard on record on the radio, that was it. That was my life from then on, from the age of eight. Um, I did do four years of um, uh, classical guitar, um, not at a, a very good, too early, I think. Uh, I didn't have time for it later on, but from 12 to 16. Um, it wasn't very interesting to me, um, especially when I was watching the TV at the weekends, you know. Um, and then it was just, um, I would badger local bands to, uh, to go and sit in with them and uh, was a sort of, uh, I suppose, local boy wonder, you know. And um, it just sort of grew from there. I had I had a band at school when I was 11, um, the same school that my father taught at, and also David Bowie was in my father's class. And we obviously uh, have been friends for a long time. <clears throat> and we used to, um, we used to uh, go into the art block stairs, which were all marble, you know, not marble, but concrete uh, stairs at lunchtime. Of course, there was a great echo there. So they introduced me to um, Buddy Holly, and Eddie Cochran, and we used to bring our guitars to school and sing and play. And um, <clears throat> then it was ju really just a, a process of uh, teaching myself, being in a band from then on, um, until, um, until The Herd, which started when I was 17, Where, 16, 17. London, or was that the... uh, well, I lived in Bromley, Kent, which was only, you know, a hop, skip and a jump up to town so um, I was sort of um, the first band that I made a record with um, was called The Preachers and we were managed by and produced by Bill Wyman who again is still a, a dear friend of mine and um, uh, so my first my first ever recording session I remember Glyn Johns was the engineer staff engineer at IBC Bill Wyman of the Rolling Stones was producing it, and uh, the drummer in the band was the original drummer of the Rolling Stones, Tony Chapman. So that I think I must have been fourteen or fifteen. I think I was on ready on TV to promote that on a Ready Steady Stones. It was called TV show when I was before I was fifteen. Okay. Uh, the relationship with uh, Steve Marriott. How did that come about? Um, that was. I'd always been a, a fan of him as a singer and a writer and guitarist, and um, we was the herd were sort of right after uh, the small faces a few years later, as far as being the new teeny bopper thing um, in England and Europe, and um, we came to a, a point in our career where we realised that um, we'd like to have a little bit more control in what what went on realizing that certain finances weren't coming our way, as, as usual. Um, <laughs> so we dumped everybody all at once. And as we were doing this, management record company, we just repudiated everything and decided if they wanted us to make a record, they'd have to sue us um, until we found out what was going on. So at that time, Steve Marriott and Ronnie Lane of The Small Faces rang us up, heard what was happening, and decided to... Uh, you know, give us a call and say, look, we've been through all this, maybe we can help. So Andrew Bowne, 
who was my partner in writing partner in the herd, who's now I've gone blank on the name. The the biggest boogie band in this country, status quo. Um, uh, we went down to see Steve and Ronnie in in the country and in their house, and I'd started to develop. They helped us produce a, a record uh, on our own, and um, I could see that um, what Steve was was into a much harder edged. Um, the blues and the rock and roll was much more important, which was always much more important to me. To the playing um, was much more important than the image, which we'd got wrapped up in. Um, so I started going down and, and uh, jamming with Steve, and, and we did some writing together. And uh, I also did a recording session as an extra guitarist with the Small Faces in Paris, again with Glyn Johns, producing for Johnny Halliday and that's when Steve and I realized I think that we'd like to form a band together and he came back from that and they did the small faces then did their last performance and he rang me and asked me if um, he could join my band so that's how Humble Pie was formed. England used to do a lot of that maybe still does mixing and matching bands guys dropping in and out of it. Yeah I think so I mean that was the time of we hated it but if 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 two people from relatively um, popular groups got together, it was classed as a super group because blind faith had happened and all that. So we that wasn't really why we did it, even though we weren't stupid that we didn't realize the commercial impact that could happen, which did with Humble Pie. Super group fever, Yes. Uh, you made a record, Town and Country, and you made some other records. How, how did you rate the records, Humble Pie? Um... It was a very exciting period. I, I enjoyed the records. I think that my favourite record um, um, was the one called Rock On, which was just previous to the to the live... Again, funny, that, not it? A live Humble Pie record that broke them. So, um, no, I, it was, again, a learning process because we virtually produced the things ourselves until... or co-produced, until we started working with uh, Glyn Johns, where he really, I mean, taught, taught me an incredible amount, obviously. About this time, too, uh, the whole Peter Frampton thing began, the, the face of 68 or whatever it was. Mm -hmm. How were you reacting to that when it first started? Well, that was with the herd, you see, because it was, it was so... Um, you know how Don Kirshner picked the monkeys? Well... That wasn't what happened with us. <laughs> but in a way, it was like once the managers, um, the record production company, uh, the record producer were all together and we had a nice little family around us, we started off doing Dave D. Dozy Beaky Mick and Titch's demos. That's how we got to know the managers. And um, they came to see us perform and we were doing anything from Mose Allison to Jimmy Smith to uh, Tamil and Motown at a residency at the Marquee Club and Eel Pie Island. We did. We were not <clears throat> a teeny bopper band, and we were. We had a huge following in London. In London, as a very musical uh, band, especially when we do our Jimmy Smith uh, trio. I'd be Kenny Burrell, Andrew would be Jimmy Smith, and Grady Tate would be Andrew Steele on drums. You know, so um, so what happened? They said, well. 
they they've written a song that they thought would be a, a good single for us. Again, you see, they were writing for us. It was sort of like all uh, manufactured. Um, Ken Howard and Alan Blakely. And um, they virtually looked down the line of us and said, pointed at me, who was a background singer in the band up until this point. I sang one number on stage. Um, You'll be the singer. You know, just that was the commercial supposed face, which is where my trouble started. (laughs) Um, And uh, this obviously wasn't terrific for the rest of the band, but we all wanted to be famous, which is what every band wants to do. Um, And we went along with it. But as soon as the press got hold of uh, a tag... um, it was the face of 68, which the editor of Disc and Music Echo gave to a Penny Valentine piece. It wasn't her fault. And um, that was it. It was sort of, we were the, I was the new front cover boy at uh, 17, 18. And. Um, was, that, was that exciting at all? Uh, to start with, yes. I mean, there's nothing um, after all this time of going and seeing all these. Uh, your your idols, your uh, the guitarists and the singers, all the bands, watching them go through it, and then all of a sudden you're being screamed at and mauled, and I mean it was a giggle really. I mean we had uh, we had a lot of fun obviously, but it got to the point where we realised we started off playing music, and now what are we actually doing here? My guitar was slung round my back most of the time, you know. And I was the, the at least the television frontman of of the band, and on the singles, um, everybody sung in the band, but it really changed the direction of, of of where we'd originally set out to go. This was the hurry. Yes, and um, so, I mean, there's the first time it actually happened to us, where. Um, the record was zooming up the charts, the first hit, and we were playing this place called Stretum Ice Rink. They, they skate around, and there's a stage on the side, and then at a certain time, <clears throat> probably 9 o'clock or something, you come on for an hour, the band, the band of the moment comes on, and um, you play, and then they go off and skate around <laughs> some more, you know. <clears throat> and the dressing room was over the other side of uh, the ice, and I remember being chased and by people on ice skates, um, and we were just walking, and there was pandemonium there for the first time. And we, I remember we got into the, we were still loading the equipment out, you know, <laughs> being mauled while you're loading a B3 isn't fun, you know what I'm saying? So um, that sort of stuff was obviously a lot of fun, but it wears thin very quickly, and you get back to the excitement of of what your art has brought you suddenly be, sort of t- turns, puts a different uh, complexion on it. Yeah, I want to get back into that later on when you're on your own, but what, what was uh, happening with Humble Pie that, that didn't go on? Um, that, was, that was basically um, a personality thing. That you and Steve? Uh, yeah. Um, well, when we first got together, um, it, was, um, it was a very de- democratic situation. And in the and we were 
the music was an amalgamation of everybody in the band. It wasn't just me and Steve. It was we all wrote together. Everyone had individual numbers. But this really wasn't. There was no real direction of Humble Pie because it was it was so democratic. And actually, Glyn Johns was the one that sat us down just before we did the Rock on, Rock on album and said, "Look, there's I got four points." He said, "And I think if you adhere to these or think about these four points, then." I think you'll be successful. Steve's the singer, because we were all singing, splitting up verses and everything. Steve's the singer, Peter's the guitarist, Jerry's the drummer, and Greg's the bass player. Voila, you know? And then um, and Steve and, and Peter are the writers. Um, so we thought, hmm, okay. But uh, it worked. You know, it was, we were... We need, needed to um, really put all our energies in one direction instead of depleting it by, by everybody having a fair shot at it. So we went along with that, and uh, it really did work. And then later on it was just uh, musical differences, personality differences? Um, yeah, well, it got so, um, uh, so one-track-minded. Um, it was basically... Um, uh, very heavy blues uh, and rock and roll and there was no it got to the point I could see it coming where there would be no light and shade in, in the music and for me being a, a melodic writer against so is Steve but our styles of playing were fire and water I mean which was the, the excitement of Humble Pie um, and that I had a lot of songs written at that point for me uh, that were, were no longer suitable for Humble Pie. They had been a year or two earlier. So I needed an outlet for it, and I knew that the as soon as we recorded the live album and we went and heard it, and I mixed it uh, uh, with Eddie Kramer and uh, the rest of the band, obviously, um, I realised that <clears throat> this was going to be a success. Um, you get a feeling when something, how big, we didn't know, but it was exactly what the public wanted at the time uh, from us. And um, I decided that that was the time to leave where <clears throat> they could then get someone in very quickly before they went out, rather than stay with it, and then it it would have been a lot more difficult, you I think. Do you have some trepidation about going on your own for the first time? Oh, absolutely. I mean, when the album started, I'd left. They all told me I was crazy, and I said, all right... Um, and then, of course, I see it zooming up the charts and they're now headlining in America on their next tour and coming home and buying Rolls Royces and things. Are you talking about uh, change? Uh, um, well, no, this, this, this was before I'd even released it. This was after I'd left Humble Pie, the live album, which I was part of, right, the Fillmore album, um, was zooming up the charts and I definitely thought I had made, for the first time, the big mistake. Um, and... Um, then it was just, uh, I didn't know then, obviously, but it was just a, a case of me going and doing um, my, so, my own, what I wanted to do, my solo albums. Um, the first one, Wind of Change, was, oh, in between recording that and leaving Humble Pie, I'd done a lot of sessions for, um, 
George Harrison, John Entwistle, Harry Nielsen. I mean, a lot of a lot of people work with John Paul Jones of Was Zeppelin. You putting your band together too? Or? No, I had no band. I had people that I was going to use on the record, but I had no band at that point. That wasn't formed until after Wind of Change was actually released. Um, but I managed to get all these people, uh, great musicians, to come and play on the record. Because so I'd take out my notebook when I was doing sessions for them and Klaus Vorman and Billy Preston and people like this and Ringo. And they all said yes. And I took their numbers and gave them a ring. So um, I remember I had to audition the two songs that Ringo was going to play on in front of him on an acoustic guitar, which was, shall we say, I'd never auditioned in my life, let alone for a Beatle. You know, <laughs> so, <laughs> it, was, uh, it was a very exciting period, that. Were you happy with the results of uh, your first record? Yes, um, and especially the fact that um, I remember that it didn't do at all well chart-wise in America or, or England, but uh, critically it was... Um, uh, my peers seemed to like it and didn't expect it to be that good. So that gave me... Um, I wanted Im immediately to go out on the road. Went out a bit too late, so... But you learn these things. But then, then you started the road, and you started to work pretty much constantly. From, you? yes. Well, Humble Pie was 69, 70 in America all the time. And then I think from 72, there was a, like a year of making the record, playing on other people's stuff. From 72 till 75 was nonstop. What was the road like for you? I... I've done so much of it that obviously when you're on the road you want to be off the road and when you're off the road you can't wait to get back. Um, it depends how you travel. <laughs> you know, I mean, I've travelled every conceivable way there is, obviously, and um, once, you, um, once you get to the private plane it's hard to take the bus again. <laughs> but um, I, I enjoy it. Um, Immensely, um, it gets down to um, all the all the parts that people say it's 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 a drudge. It's so exhausting. It can be if you if you burn a candle at both ends, which I've done, obviously. Um, but um, there's nothing quite like it, as far as I'm concerned. Get tired playing live. Yeah, it gets to a point. I mean, when when the live album uh, really hit, then. Um, because, oh, well, Pete loves to work. Ha-ha. Um, give me that uh, legal pad. <laughs> Let me fill it up with dates. Um, it got too much. There was too much work uh, for me and for the audience and for America. How did you deal with the success of the, uh, the live album? Um, you know, this now puts you in a, in a super group here somewhere, a, a very rarefied atmosphere. Yes. What kind of impact did that have on your life, on uh, personally? I remember the first time the band, we all went out. We were all very close. Uh, at the very beginning of the the big success, um, we went to a party for ELO in New York, and they had a roped-off table for us. I mean, I'd never been in the VIP sections of clubs or anything like that before. Um, I was too busy. Um, so uh, they have this little roped-off area for us, and 
I remember walking in, and obviously there were thousands of photographers and all this. We sat down at this round table, all just giggling because everyone, all the band was saying, "Do you realise everybody is like just staring at you?" I mean, I said, "Yeah, it's just quite a funny sensation, you know." What what is it? <laughs> what is it? Is my jacket dirty or <laughs> you know you don't quite realise what what has happened, and you're a flavour of the month, and there you are, and um, people think of you totally differently. They don't think of you as a human being almost, which is very disconcerting and can be very difficult to deal with, um, especially when it happens so quick and so big, because my my feeling has been that. I'm no different to you, to the man outside. We all do what we do. It's just that what I do and what I enjoy doing puts me, the audience put me on a pedestal because they think they like what I do or when, when you, they, there's a big hit, that's something special to them and they, they put you up on that pedestal and it's, it can be very hard to deal with. Did you get accustomed to it? Yeah, um, I think... Um, in the end, um, well, not in the end, but I mean, when I did get used to it on tour, which is where where you are expected to be, um, is the most dangerous or can be the most uh, bothering time because it was sort of suggested to me that maybe I should stay in my room, otherwise I would be bothered or I would be chased or whatever. So, in the end, in, instead of... I think it's a state of mind that if you want to be bothered, you'll be bothered, and you can go out. It only takes a baseball cap, cover the hair up, and you can go anywhere, because that, with me, is what makes me so... or may, especially then, made me so... Uh, to, uh, to stick out. So, uh, what happened there was that um, it was the bodyguard outside the door, and I basically didn't come out of my room until I was called for to play. Um... And that was that was the most depressing period for me because uh, you kind of <laughs> I'm a human being I I want to be with other human beings and uh, it was a very tough time for me that that was after the I'm in New album and I I had lost the enjoyment that that what I do for a living had, had brought me had the image kind of overwhelmed the music I, totally overtaken it um, it was. Um, Definitely, uh, it, it, it's hard here because I, I don't want to make this heavy, no, but I'm trying, you know, you know what I'm talking, I'm well, talking about, well, D. But you're you're I, interesting because, you know, some of the things that happened to you are bizarre, you know, that, uh, that, that it should have happened so fast for you to make it. And right. A series of events that seem almost like faded. Yeah. Um, but it was just down to the, the thing that um, it was. In, instead of instead of rushing back, you see, no one had had an album that big, sales-wise, to that point. Two years, three years later, Saturday Night Fever wiped it off to, you know, and broke the records are made to be broken. But put me in a very... Uh, <clears throat> no one had been that high up the mountain at the, up until that point. I was the leader at that point. And so the record company, there were no new rules. The rules were, up until that, the basic uh, record company rules were big album, okay, let's not wait too long, let's rush back in, do another one and capitalise on the, on the success. 
you don't do that. But no one had understood that at that point because no one understood how something that sells over 10, over 12, whatever, it's 15 million, I don't know. But um, no one up until that point knew the longevity of and how, how um, long it would take that to seep into the whole world. And to rush something out was... Uh, the record and the publicity was overexposure enough to bring something else out within a year or 18 months was the first big mistake. But no one knew. You know, I mean, I wish I'd have had the, the foresight to realize that, but I didn't have the experience to know that. <clears throat> and then along came uh, the motion picture. Then along came that, yes, which was, um, again, something that um, I didn't feel... Well, here you are. You've had the number one record of the century, of the decade, or the past all few, time. of all, up until that point, of all time, right? And offers come in. Unfortunately, uh, the person, the people that were advising me at that point, um, weren't saying no to anything. It was like uh, the power of being able to say, "I have Peter Frampton. You want him." what are you going to pay for him, was all too much. And um, not realising that uh, credibility-wise for a musician, which I think had got forgotten along the way, and definitely had, I was now a product in every sense of the word. I was over-marketed. I mean, you didn't need to hype the live album, and it got hyped, you know, with me, the front cover Rolling Stone with my shirt off. Things like that. Um, instantly turning off uh, a lot of my musical fans, um, not realising how a, uh, a split-second photo like... There was only one. I only had Scavillo let him take one. The whole other session, the rest of the session was normal, you know, jacket on and everything. But you know, you do that one, that's the one that's going to be used. Every time. Um... And it just got to the point where um, the image had totally overridden. Um, I was now appealing totally to the teenage girls. Um, I think the guys were, had moved, had forgotten that I played good guitar. Um, and it got to the point later on where I remember turning up at a gig and the girls were outside after the gig, that's right, they said, oh, really? I didn't know you played guitar. You know, which was, to me, that was like alarm bells went off, you know. But it was all too late at that point to... Um, um, eventually, what I should have done was, if I'd have known, was after the live album, it would have been... Th yeah, it should have been three, four years before the next record came out. What... At what point did you realize that this picture was not... Oh, sorry, yeah, you know, I digressed. That's okay, just, just <clears throat> free form here. Uh, the picture you got, did you get talked into it, or did you really want to do it, or... Well, <clears throat> I'll... Good on paper. It looks very good on paper. You've got Beatles music, you've got Robert Stigwood production, you've got George Martin doing the music, you've got the Bee Gees, and... What I was, the carrot was, Paul McCartney is going to play the part that Billy Preston in the end played. 
That gave it all the credibility I needed to say, yes, I'll do it. Of course, I arrived on the set the first day. Paul who? <laughs> so then I realized that, oh dear, I've made another big mistake. But there was, I suppose I could have walked out. I suppose I could have, but um, there were a lot of people around me saying, oh, it's going to be great, it'll be, don't worry about it, it's, you know, how can you lose? Um, there was a, a team of people at that time that, that uh, to do with me, that thought that they were invincible. Um, I mean, me included. Um, I remember when uh, we all went into the uh, Philadelphia soccer team together. Uh, right? And Jerry Moss and Paul Simon. We just thought we couldn't lose. <laughs> we lost our asses on that one. <laughs> just about ten years too early for soccer in America. Um, but, um, no, it was um, a very unrealistic time. And the picture, was that, uh, was it fun making it? Was it the drag making it? Well, <clears throat> there was about three people, maybe, maybe half a dozen people in, in the whole movie that had made a movie before. Um, and the rest, the stars of the movie, were um, non-actors, I mean, or novices. And we needed um, a strong director. And I would have thought that we needed, even though it was one long video, we never said a word in it. George Burns did all the narration. I think we should have all gone to school, you know? I think we should have had coaches. Because even if you don't, not saying anything in a movie, the movie screen is huge. And someone's the director says, OK, now, when you come around the corner in the car and you look at the balloon, I want you to look amazed, surprised. So what do you do? You think about looking amazed. You go, and that, your mouth is like four foot deep on the screen, you know? It's so ridiculous when all you need to do is to raise an eyebrow about, uh, you know, an eighth of an inch. And that's normal, you know, what someone would look at, surprised. So we didn't know any of this, and that's... I remember, I remember seeing that scene and laughing, not... Uh, laughing at me, you know, because it was just funny. The picture probably damaged you more than anybody else in Unfortunately, the world. Unfortunately... Uh, you know, Stigwood could go on. And, uh, Bee Gees went right on. Bee Gees went right on. Uh, with Saturday Night Fever. You were so upfront and so vulnerable, it seems, mm -hmm. that, you know, uh, trying to lick this image anyhow. I took the rap. I, t I took the rap for the movie, definitely. But, uh, you know, there's a story about that, about the album right there, which was terrible. God. There were only, um, th there were only a couple of acts on that, um, in the film that, that came off good doing the music, which when they did it them their, their way. Earth, Wind and Fire yes. did their own version of uh, Got to Get You Into My Life, Aerosmith did it Aerosmith way. Everything else seemed to be very... Music. To the, uh, yeah, well, it was... So, you can't... The last thing you do is copy the Beatles. Yeah. I mean, that's like an unwritten law, you know. That's, uh, what happened after the picture? Are we on? Yeah, we're on now. Yeah. Okay. What, uh, what happened after the, uh, the picture? Um, well, um... 
the next big thing in my uh, illustrious career was a car wreck, obviously. Uh, didn't uh, do too, too much good for me. Um, that was in the Bahamas, yes. and um, it was really the um, uh, the beginning of me realizing. When I woke up, I was so glad to be alive um, uh, that you start wondering what the hell is going on, because it was um, from the from the movie until that time was was like a, a yeah it was not a nice time at all you didn't want to play or you're resentful or right and um it was really um my personal life completely fell apart and um uh, I realized that um there were a lot of people taking a lot of money that shouldn't be well not a lot of people but you know, my finances were being going somewhere else. And a lot of people were making a lot of money and not thinking about my career in the long term. And it's sort of, I suppose, had um, uh, really sort of taken me for all I was worth. Uh, use uh, what I did and sort of wrung it dry. And here I was at the end of all this, miserable after making a lot of people very happy. I mean, I'm talking about the audience as well as those people. That, so it was... Um, <clears throat> and then the few albums after the last couple of albums for A&M were... One of the breaking all the rules was a valiant attempt to sort of get back there, but it wasn't in my heart to... I'd lost the the drive, the energy and the excitement that, that had gone with everything else before. Because I felt that I'd, I suppose I was, I was bitter in certain ways about what had happened. Um, and then um, in 82, um, I completely, um, I was no longer with the A&M. Management had gone two years before that. <clears throat> um, uh, agents, everything. I just sort of uh, pulled back from everything, and um, it was a difficult period. But um, what were you doing? Were you well, I got married um, and decided that I would like to live at home for a while, and just uh, I needed to recharge in every way. You know, being in, in New York, in, New in Westchester. <clears throat> got married and. Um, we had a baby girl, and um, I enjoyed... I didn't enjoy not doing uh, anything out there. I was writing a lot, and gradually got back into what I really... How I really... What do I, what do I want to do? What turns me on as far as what, it, what are the things that I like to do? Um, and it came down to two things. Uh, my family and my music, and uh, the two are obviously very connected. Um, your work and, and your, um, especially, um, I have a very happy home life. So, um, it was getting back, wanting to play guitar again, <clears throat> because for a, a while, um, 
not that it had got me into trouble, but but generally it it had just got out of hand so much that um, it was almost distasteful to pick up the guitar for a while. <clears throat> so this was just a, a four-year period of... of um, I had lots of offers to join lots of bands, turn them all down, and um, big bands, and um, <clears throat> decided that uh, I was going to uh, do it again. And um, uh, having the baby, obviously, for me made a lot of things um, that seemed so important the day before. Perspective. The perspective came right back in and was really a shock, you know, a great shock and uh, was very, very positive. Um, and uh, then it was just a case of rebuilding manager, um, Atlantic Records, uh, Tony Smith, uh, Atlantic and ITG, just getting the, yeah. the people around me again that believed in what I was doing. And... Um, uh, we, as well, it's only last year, but <clears throat> the first record, um, the new record, wasn't an incredible um, uh, commercial success, but, um, and there I am supporting on tour. But I tell you, I had more enjoyment in those three months than I have in ten years. You know, it was like starting all over again. There was no pressure. Um, the only pressure was my own pressure to prove to everybody, hey, remember this? You know, uh, it was very exciting. And the record, I'll never know why it didn't do better than it did. I think people, my little theory is that the business said, yeah, you did one before, we remember that. We want to see you do it twice in a row. So uh, I think the next one is going to uh, really be something. So um, you, You're a young man and you've had this... Roller coaster ride, which which seems unfair. I, I, have you gotten over being resentful or questioning, or why did these things happen? Um, it'll always be a um, there'll always be a, a part of, of of my mind that will resent that. Obviously, it's I don't think it's possible to get rid of that. But the thing that balances that up for me is is that. First of all, that's the past, and if you worry about the past, you're never going to get on with your life. Um, <clears throat> it's I learned a lot from it. I would never let the same things happen. I'm not saying I won't make any mistakes. We all make mistakes, but I don't think that that will ever happen. The important thing is, um, musically, um, the credibility that was lost um, has because of this new album, the time off, and that I'm serious. You, people saw that I was serious about what I'm doing again. Um, I, it's been a few years since I'd seen a good review. You know what I'm saying? And all of a sudden, the reviews are, wow, you know, about the guitar again, which is where I started. So that, <clears throat> that wipes the slate clean as far as I'm concerned. That's, that's the only thing I've ever wanted to... I'd like to be known, if anything, all right, so I'll go down as the guy that has the, had the biggest selling live album of all time. But I'd like to be known as, as a great guitarist, and I think I am. And um, I think something that I went, as I told you, I went to school with David Bowie, uh, for only for a year, but we'd sort of been crossing paths and been friends for, must be 25 years. 
And um, he called me up while I was on tour. I've just come back from Switzerland. I play guitar on the new Bowie album. So that says it right there for me. That's so exciting. And um, it goes in circles, doesn't it? Yeah. Complete. If you hang in there. Yeah, yeah right. You let it beat you. So that was um, an honor to, to... After 25 years, we actually get to play together, you know? Peter, if uh, up to this point in your career, in, in your life, if there's one period you could put in a bottle up on a shelf and take it down later on, that the most satisfying, was it the live period? Was it when you were just getting started? Was it this coming back period? What, what, what's been the best so far? Oh, dear. You ever thought that everything was really clicking and I th- <clears throat> I suppose that that from um, there's two two periods I would have to say is the day that that um, when I realised that I'd finally cracked it and not only cracked it but it was beyond belief the success when the record was stayed number one for seventeen weeks and. Um, but that led to all sorts of trouble. <laughs> you could just isolate that period. Right, right there. But I think um, the most recent uh, period is because I feel that everything that I've done is, is on track and it's been my ultimate decision to do all these things. Um, the new record, playing for other people. Um, I have a very... Uh, I have a, f- a great family. I think right now I have a feeling of, of confidence in, in what I'm doing, um, knowing what is right for me, and um, I'm enjoying uh, going up the ladder again. It is it is the most enjoyable thing to do is to climb the ladder. And you've been where you're going, so it's yes. nice to know. Oh yes, hello. Uh, nice, nice to meet you again. Yes. <laughs> but. Um, yeah, I think I think now is uh, I'm very happy with with the way things are going right now. Terrific. Thank you very much.